Welcome back to the Time for Heroes podcast, now in association with the Songbird HQ. Go to the songbirdhq.com for all your musical needs, latest news, reviews and interviews with some of the best signed and unsigned bands. The Songbird HQ also deliver PR services for new talent coming through. Right, thank you very much for coming on the podcast, um, Matthew Hickman, frontman of Brown Bear. Uh, I've had you on my old podcast, the Typical Time podcast, so I'll post a link in the show notes for people if they want to go and have a, a listen to that. But just for people that maybe aren't aware of you, can you just tell us um, who you are and what you do? Yeah, I'm I'm Brown Bear, and um, also well, Matt Hickman's my real name. And um, yeah, music's my thing. We've we've been going for uh, nine years now. This we're on our second album, um, and yeah, it's been lovely. Like, I, and I write songs. Like, I write I write for people, and I, I now do a bit of like lecturing, like uh, teaching people to write songs or t- helping young songwriters or. Well, songwriters of any age that are trying to up their game. So it's been um a real a real journey over the last almost decade of what I was doing, but I've been really lucky to kind of even after the last few years uh, stick in music. So yeah, that's that's me, that's what I do. Right. So obviously where whereabouts did you a young Matthew Hitman grow up? What was life like for you? I, I grew up in Largs in North Ayrshire. That was it was like probably most people's experience of growing up in Ayrshire. <laughs> uh, you know, you're you're born, they tell you to pick a side and and you uh, you kinda figure out the rules of the West of Scotland pretty early in life and uh but I loved it man. I, I I'm really proud to be from Ayrshire. Like I was lucky enough to grow up in Largs, which was quite small and I guess everyone everyone kinda knows everyone and when we started doing the band that started the music folk were kind of getting behind us just for the sake of someone from their town doing something like and then yeah but I, like you you'll know how it is in in, in the west like a lot, a lot of times things aren't focused around music or arts and then it's very much like people work to drink at the weekend and <laughs> like doing doing music or being into music was just an obscurity so but like it just i didn't really even know how to get started because it's not like we had a music scene or music venues and um, so from a young age, like I was putting myself up to the cities to just find out who would let me play a show somewhere, you know, and, and it's, it's a real shame because I think Ayrshire is full of really creative people and it's got a history for writing, but um, I mean, as is the case with a lot of places it's gotten now, like it's just so underfunded and um, there's so much like austerity yeah. that is people that don't feel like they have. Focused on the... The big cities really done it, Glasgow and Edinburgh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, what what was it? What was life like for you? Was your mum and dad into music? Was it were they like an influence on you? Yeah, definitely. Like my mum and dad were like really big into music. More so, my dad. He was like a real like um often, you know, like he had his collection of records and and CDs and um. <clears throat> from a young age, like his his days off, he would spend listening to music. And so when we, when we got up on a Saturday morning, like we'd be woken up to him blaring music 
And I think mm-hmm. the greatest thing that happened in the house is when we got those like the first ever um <clears throat> like wireless headphones that you could connect to like CD players. Uh-huh. And and then we're like, this is great because he can just listen to it himself and <laughs> not interrupt the whole house. Yeah. But um he was he was music daft, honestly. And uh I, I was talking about recently, like he, he had this um I just remember it being a, a run of numbers. So it was like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight, up to like twenty-five or something. And I never touched them for ages because they were CDs. I didn't really get what they were. It was like older, so I pulled them out, and it was actually like some sort of like collection of like blues music. So it was like, like not say uh-huh. what number one was like Sunhouse and then BB King and Sister Rosetta Tharp and and I would listen to everything. I would just like in my spare time, would pick out a CD I hadn't heard and put it on. So I I was listening to like honestly everything um, from yeah. a young age, and I never grew up in that kind of bullshit way of like. Oh, the Beatles were the best band in the world, and that's what everyone should listen to. Like, I just I feel so grateful that that wasn't the way I was brought up because I meet a lot of musicians now and a lot of artists, and and they have come up and they just think the Beatles are everything, and and you can hear it in their songs that they don't know anything other than yeah knockoffs of other music, right? Like, because that's mm-hmm. essentially what it was, and they don't have. You, I always say to people like, if someone comes up to me and says that like their band, their favorite bands the Beatles, I'm just instantly like bored. I don't even want to hear what they have to say because it's yeah. like to me, it's like the to me, it means they've not thought about music. And uh, if someone came up to me and said, oh, my, if I met someone like a metal gig and they came up to me and said, what's your favourite band? And they said, do you know what? I, actually, the Spice Girls, I'd go, I need to talk to you because I need to know what it is about music that you love that made you think that. Because that's somebody that's thought, yeah. irrespective of everything I'm, I've been told, this is what I'm into. And I'm like, I'm down for that. I say to people all the time, like, if, if someone hits me with some bullshit about the Beatles, I'm like, uh, okay, cool. Great, good for you, man. I think I think when people say the Beatles as well, it's because they think the person wants to hear that. Uh, and, exactly. Yeah, and the chances are that probably the Beatles isn't their favourite band, but they just think it's the right answer. Obviously, there's going to be someone who's telling the truth, but <laughs> it, it's not everyone you meet. If it's, and, and everyone, and when I was in uni, I went to uni to, and I studied commercial music, and uh, it was like the Beatles or the Smiths. And I was like, is, that, is this the extent of music you've listened to? Like, somebody send some help. <laughs> have you had the? Uh, have you ever had this conversation with Kyle? Uh, Kyle Faulkner, because obviously he's a he's like a big Beatles fan, isn't he? Oh God, it was just yeah. every every time I said that, because I'm I don't even mean it, but I will, I'll say that I don't like the Beatles, and I don't <laughs> even really mean it, right? But I'm just being like facetious, and every time I say it, but how, how how could you say that? Eh? Oh, that's outrageous, like. And he'd, he'd go off on a pure tangent and, and they'd explain to me how like the Beatles created music. And I'd yeah. like, well, I think that we need to be honest about how that came about because they didn't. They stole music and that's mm-hmm. how they ended up with how they were. Same, same with the Stones. Um, but yeah, no, it's, he, 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 do you know what? Whatever anyone thinks about people saying the Beatles are their favourite artist, that is his favourite artist. He could tell you anything about any of the Beatles and any of the songs like he, he loves and dies for that band. So, like, I, I, for all I say about people that's not their favourite artist, that, that is his, like... But also, he, he's, he's got an amazing taste in music, like, he's massive on Crowded House. Yeah, I remember I'm, one day... watched all the videos of him doing Crowded House and stuff like that for family parties and things like that. Um, so, yeah, yeah he's, he's he's music daft, and he loves pop music and, and like, musical theatre as well. So he's, he's really, like, a lot more into other things and he sometimes talks about and um, yeah. when you get in the van with him and you've got the tunes on it's do you know what you, the go-to was always Shania Twain's greatest hits 
Yeah, well, he done a cover on the, one of his singles, yeah. didn't he? Yeah. yeah. Black and Blue Eyes, that was a brilliant song as well. Yeah. Uh, so, obviously, Brown Bear started uh, Brown Bear and the Bandits, I'm led to believe. Uh, um. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like they were very different bands. Right. So I, I don't really count them as the same project because it was different members and different songs. I think the only song that came, I carried over was Olive Tree because it was like my own wee song. Mm-hmm. So I kind of count that as like one project and then it didn't work. And I, But I quite liked the moniker of Brown Bear, so I just kept it and, and made a new, right. a new kind of act. But yeah, I would definitely say like they were, it was a, diff- a different project for me. And then when that ended... There was a period of me not doing anything. I was kind of in a limbo of like, what, what do we do? And then I had a management at the time, and they said, "Well, let's just roll on and and figure out what you want to call yourself." And we're just going to take a couple of the bookings, and we were working on some stuff for you, and that stuff turned out to be the Libertines Union. So, and I I didn't really know at the time. They said they were kind of like, get get your get yourself together, get your life together figure out what you want to do. We were working on stuff in the background and um, we know you've got a single that you want to use and that hadn't been really switched to dead or alive and we'll start from there. So I, you know, I was, I was just kind of like, who's going to be in the band? I'm going to make a band. What songs are going to do? I, I reached out to uh, Sam Waller, who's still the drummer now. Um, mm-hmm. we'd, we'd known him from being in a band called Greenish or Dinosaurs. And I was like, you know, I'm thinking about starting this new band I think we were playing, we used to play FIFA together. <laughs> and yeah. I was like sitting chatting shit from one day. Like, and I was like, what do you think? And he's like, yeah, I love your music, man. I love, I love, love the way you write. Let's do it. We got in and started jamming. And then we got Andy in, who's, uh, oh, sorry, we didn't. I, it was actually a couple of people. A guy called Chris. Was he first? I think he was the first guitarist. <laughs> and uh, a bass player called Rudy, who the management knew. They were kind of like, here's this guy, Rudy. He's a great bass player. Uh, trying to teach them some songs and we started getting set together and I, if I remember rightly the first gig we did was like some like was it, was it like the launch of Hard Rock Cafe in Glasgow or something it was some weird like right. corporate type event mm-hmm. which and, is uh, probably as far away from Brown Bear as you could get really well, yeah it to- totally it was so so strange and I guess at the time that one of the managers had said this would be a great thing to do and I was like, all right, like young and naive and like cool, I just trust whatever you say. And, and, and now thinking about that, like <laughs> now when people know me and they know like, you know, I, I can't even, I can't, I can't say who it was, but like some, someone someone like substantial offered us a, a substantial amount of money to do a show uh, two days ago and I was just like, I didn't even get into the. I just went no. I tell them no. I just have no interest in them. And I think people were like, "What? That's like a big deal." And I, I, I think that's brilliant. Being that um, sure of yourself and like true to what you believe in. I would. Well, you know, what? I'm just like I'm really principled, and I don't. I don't even think it's being so much sure of myself is like I've reached a stage in life where I just don't want to do anything that doesn't make me happy. And mm-hmm. I, I I work a lot with other artists and like artist rights and stuff like that and I think th- the minute you accept anything less is the minute we we encourage less and I yeah. think it's happened in music and like I'm really really strict with venues and stuff like that and promoters about payment I'm like why is it that of all the businesses in the world that musicians are expected to work for free I'm just not going to do that anymore and um, 
if you don't want to pay it, that's totally cool. No hard, no hard feelings, but I'm not going to be there. And yeah. that's just how I live my life now. If it doesn't work for me, I'm not going to be there. Yeah, and but, because I want to protect the well-being of every, and this is the most important thing. It's not about money or whatever. It's about like it's about money in the sense that like everybody in my setup should be able to pay a bill. They should be able to pay for their food, and mm-hmm. like to me, that's well-being, and that's like the minimum we should accept from any. And 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 I think it goes for. All, I mean, we're seeing it all over. Like there's strikes everywhere because people are not getting enough to live. And yeah, and and it's not it's not right. Like we we deserve as humans to have the same access to like a, a decent life that's not even asking for a good life that's asking for the bare minimums like um so yeah i'm, I'm like i really i i, I think principled other people call me stubborn <laughs> no i would say principled yeah there, there needs to be mere people fighting for things like that that's mm. i mean the, the stuff that you're asking for should be the norm rather than the oh. Rather than anything else, it should. So, and so, sometimes, like <clears throat> you'll know yourself, like, and I guess people maybe know or will know after this podcast or both podcasts. Like, we've done a lot of things in our career, and a lot of them are like good, good, and good. A lot of them are particularly whether they in and in, in reality played out is like they sound on paper. On paper, they're like amazing things to put in. Like, if you were to do a promo package about how great we were, there'd be a lot of key points. Yeah, and sometimes. Promoters will get in touch with me and say, "Well, you know, like ticket sales aren't so good." And I'll say, "Well, you know, I've done all this work. You could start doing yours." Like, there's this thing of like music and promotion, but it's like the artist problem to promote it. I'm like, "Sorry, you're the promoter. I, I made this record. I've got the band together. I've I've done all the socials. I've done all this. All these things that you're able to post about to say why people should come and see us. I did that. That was my part of the bargain here. Like mm-hmm. now you've got that on on the penalty spot. Kick it in the goal. Stop making it my problem, but." People are inherently lazy. I, I had one the other day, so I was saying, oh, this, 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 this. And obviously we just had, again, I'm sure it we'll comes to that, but we just had some really cool news about the album and how well it done. And you think, well, you can see that, you know what's happened, post about it. Tell the people in, in, in your area or in your in your promotion, send out a mailing list and say, this is what happened for the starters and they're coming here. That's yeah. not my job. That's your job. And I think... That's the problem we have in music because we all so badly want to do it. We accept the bare minimum from everything because we think, well, if we don't just accept it, then we won't be able to do it. Whereas it's like, no, you have a right to do it. And those people in this business should also be doing their job. Like during lockdown, everyone got on their sofas and sang for saving venues, which is cool, man. But like nobody sang to save artists. And those venues will still be open, not paying artists. So like, what are we saving them for? There's a lot of venues out there who won't pay you to play. So what, what do you need them for? Like, go, go and make your own spaces. Go and play in someone. I'd rather go and play in someone's living room for nothing than in a venue for nothing. Do you know what yeah. I mean? So if I'm going to get paid nothing, I'm going to go and spend some time with people who actually want to see me rather than bursting my chops to get to fill people in a, a venue so that they buy food and drink there and pay them and not me. Yeah, because that, that's, that's really what they care about, isn't it? Is a, yeah. how much you make through the bar and stuff like that. Yeah, and that's not every venue. There's some incredible venues out there, particularly... You find that in the to be the case in rural areas and like the Highlands and Islands, or like when you get into the Ayrshires, they have such a love and respect for you traveling that they really want to make sure it works. It's, it tends to be cities that kind of go well because they know they can just get any old person yeah. in through the door. Well, I mean that touches on the fact that like these smaller areas, they they're grateful to have you because they're not getting people coming to play there. No. Because they get treated as, like, Ayrshire, for example, get treated as, like, a subsidiary of Glasgow by big promoters, so they're kind of like, 
well, people from there will just travel to Glasgow for shows, and it's not putting them on in that area. Whereas people from, like people from Fife, don't want to have to get a train to Edinburgh to see a gig all the time. They want to see gigs in Fife. Yeah, I so, mean, so it's yeah. Uh, I mean, I stay, I stay in Wisher, and it's even a fucking ball ache for me getting into Glasgow for gigs. So like, totally. when I came to see you the other week, um. Because of public transport, I must um the first support act. You know what I mean? Yeah, and that's yeah. just that's just wash out of Glasgow. That's pretty easy on the train, but I it's as a pain hard. So And and you know like yourself, like so if you have a day like that, it's like the train adds another like five to ten pounds. Mm-hmm. And then if you have to get dinner in, that's like fifteen to twenty quid. So like it takes a gig from being like a tenner to being like forty, fifty quid. Which isn't achievable for everyone like that's especially not now like yeah and and then for some people they go well, I'll have to get a hotel that could be like, that could be like the hotel could be like ten times the base of the ticket mm-hmm. for some bands so like it's not it's not achievable for some people to be able to travel whereas if you could walk down to that show you'd be like well I'll pay whatever like and, and obviously when we did that last tour in the the regional areas we did pay what you can. And there was one show that refused to do pay what you can. They said, how will we make money if we let people pay what they want? And it did the worst. Every other show did amazing because people came in and went, and if someone couldn't pay, they couldn't pay. And that's totally cool. But they got to experience music even even in their worst moment. And And you'll probably find with things like that, because people are more relaxed and able to pay what they like, you'll probably find that those venues probably did make more money through the bar and stuff like that because people are more relaxed and more willing to enjoy yourself and and have a drink and stuff like that or whatever. I had a friend who used to own a venue and he said, the worst thing that happens in a music venue is when a band plays because people aren't buying drinks. That was the genuine like (sighs) ethos of people that run venues. Not everyone, like I'm saying, but like there is a real thing of that. And I think when that's like, I think, I think that's why like, you know, they have sofa sound shows and they're always sold out and it's like in weak, quirky venues and people sit on the floor and not one person speaks, everybody listens and everybody comes up and talks to you. I think it's because probably all those people are people who think, well, I wouldn't go to a normal gig because I don't like being in a sticky venue with loads of chatting and loads of beer and and like, they forget that people actually love to hear music. <laughs> like, actually, do you know what? Bands aren't annoying. Bands are really incredible and it's great to hear new music. Yeah. And, but people know that you're not actually putting on new music for the sake of it. You're doing it for like whatever. So I think I, I I often feel that in life, people assume like the general public or people outside of the business to be like stupid. And I think even if people can't pinpoint what they don't like about it, they know that something's not right or it's disingenuous. They might not be able to put their finger on what that is, but they can get the sense of like, I'm not into something about this. And then they don't come back. And it's like, well, they're not into it because it's not real. And I think that for so many, I see so many bands and, you know, I, I've been here 10 years almost and as in Brown Bear and the Bandits before. And there's so many bands who I've seen coveted as like, this is the next big band. And I don't even know if they still make music. And and I could, I, 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 the minute I heard it, I went, don't, I don't know if I believe it. And people go, oh, you know, you're just cynical. And I go, ah, I'm just telling you my gut feeling. I just don't believe something about it. And lo and behold, it doesn't work because... Yeah, they don't, if I don't believe it, the crowd doesn't believe it. The band probably don't believe it. They probably get fed up trying to pretend to be that, and mm-hmm. it just becomes miserable for everyone. Whereas I think just go out and be yourself. Just be proud of who you are. And like, it might take a long time to to meet the right people who love your music, but when you do meet them, they'll be with you for life. Like yeah, 
And I mean, that's that's probably what you find with your fan base. You've you've had that fan base, and it's grew organically through the yeah through the the nearly ten years you've been. Yeah, do, do you know the biggest compliment I think I've ever had, and I don't think they even they weren't mean, mean it to be offensive, but they didn't mean it as a compliment. They were just like talking. I was I was writing with an artist, and they said, "Do you know what's funny about you? Like, you you might never have got any bigger, but you've never got less." And that, and really, the most difficult thing in music is to not become less, because there's so many diminished returns. They're like you've stayed consistently at one level, or above. Like you've never dropped a level. You've never gone back down anywhere. You've always like grown and then stayed. Mm-hmm. And it, you might stay there for a while, and it might take a while to get the next. But you've never decreased. And I was like, I was like, well, cheers. I don't. Know. <laughs> I guess yeah. cheers. That's a good thing, right? And but but I always feel that part of it's just that. Um, I just I'm a normal person. Like someone, someone wants. I, 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 in all the places in the world, I was in Norwich with folk, right. and I was in the street, and someone came up and said, "Oh, are you are you brown bear?" And I was like, "The fuck do you know what that is?" And they they said, uh, "Do you know what I love about you? Like you, um, you come out and you'll do a bunch of things, and then you just fuck off, and nobody knows what you're doing." And I was like, "Yeah, but I'm just a normal person. I've always just gone and seen my family and seen my pals and like." Working on whatever I'm working on, and then I don't feel like I oh, I don't feel like I need to post every day and say I'm at Pizza Express or whatever and do a TikTok. I just fuck, fuck that shit. I don't give a shit about that. Like and nobody yeah. else, nobody, nobody wants to know about like <laughs> nobody wants to know how I pack my fridge and all that. Like, get a grip. Like they want to know how they want to know that I'm making music. They want me to turn up and do it well, right? And uh-huh. that's what I'm going to do. People don't need to know that shit. That's that's irrelevant. I mean, people probably think. Most rock people people would probably think that that rock stars don't pack the fridge. You know what I mean? <laughs> they, they forget that you've got like another life outside of on a stage yeah. playing guitar. You know what I mean? They forget that you need to do your shopping, do the hoovering and housework and stuff like that. I've so got right into ironing lately. I yeah, I was just to look at it and think this looks dreadful, but it's quite relaxing. Oh, I don't mention Ireland. I'll get a pile of that today later before I go to right. See if I turn this, this laptop right now. The pile's like higher than my roof. Uh, so, obviously, you touched on your, your manager. Your manager at the time was that Adrian Hunter? So, we had two managers. We had a, a manager called Miles Goodwin um, and a manager called Adrian Hunter. Yeah, Adrian, Adrian's uh, a, a previous guest on the podcast. So yeah, and Adrian's like he's not doing anything to do with music anymore, sadly. But mm-hmm. he, he was like he was one of the great minds of music. Like I learned a lot from him, and uh, I, I think like it's, it's probably really difficult to understand like. I didn't really get it when it was happening, but see, see that whole Libertines Union, see everything that happened, see all of that that happened. Uh-huh. Like that was orchestrated by Adrian. He right. planned everything meticulously. This is how it's going to look when we get to here. And then we'll be able to get to here. And then we get to here, we'll get to here. And I almost felt that like when he left, that derailed. It didn't, if he'd stayed, I feel like they maybe would have gone to these insane places because he was just. Yeah. So he, he, um, when did he leave then? Like kind of, obviously they played Hyde Park and then they, they played like Redden and Leeds and then there yeah. was kind of that gap. So was it in between then? Yeah, after all that, the peak. Uh-huh. 
Because that, that was kind of like their first comeback, and it didn't obviously it didn't really last. And then yeah. came back again with the, the album. Yeah, so he, he was there for the album and not for like Redden and Leeds and then and, and and that year they played uh Tea in the Park, Redden and Leeds, but they also played Glastonbury and I don't think any other acts ever headlined all right. all three. I think that was a history to do that. And obviously like that was really last minute, so they flew them in mm-hmm. um to Glastonbury. It was like and I, I was with them through that whole time. I, I, I honestly, man, like, I, I still can't believe that there, that wasn't documented because I remember living through all of that going, something crazy is going on here. I was working for them. So I ended up, because of aging, in the lull for the band because there was a, the reunion, sorry, so the reunion happened first, which was great. But then that year happened with the album and somehow, you know, and I remember being there in the chart day and they're like, are they going to get number one? It has to happen. And then, if I'm correct, it was Enter Shikari that came in just above them by like mm-hmm. a number of sales and that felt like the first real blow of like wow how did that how did that happen and then it was just incredible like and honestly like the the crew were the most exceptional crew uh they were flawless from top to bottom in their execution of productions and 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 for a band like that that can be quite erratic or have a lot of erratic people try to be involved in the process, I think the the crew that they picked really kept everything so structured and so like um, and I learned so much from them. Like you know, I I was just like brought in. I don't even really know what my job was. Um, mm. I think they just thought he's 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 a he's a music guy. He should be in this camp, and. Uh, as as it would happen, like I would do one thing for one person in the crew, and someone would say, "Oh shit!" I, I think I think how I think how the crew the crew bond started because the the one thing I would say about that setup is it felt like there was a bit of like a management upper team and a crew who felt like we were just a crew. Sometimes that mm. happens on a tour, just the nature of it. Um, I'd I'd been told when we got to lead red red and red and it was Leeds. Leeds was first. Leeds was first. You're just to make sure everyone has everything they need. That was what I, I was I told my job was make sure everyone has everything that they need. Cool. So when I got to site, the only people there were the riggers, like the, the proper crew, you know. Uh-huh. And I, I went up to them, naive as fuck. Does anybody want anything? Like, would you like some tea or water? <laughs> the, the riggers were like, and my, there were some riggers there that were old men. They were like, and my whole time rigging, I've never had anyone offer me anything. And I was like, well, fuck, man, that's my job. And then when those people, when that came from that into the tours, some of those people stayed in it and I would still be the same. So they would be like, I think they knew he doesn't really get what he's supposed to be doing. But they would say to me like, do you want to come and learn how we do this? Do you want to come see how we rig the lights? Or, hey, do you want to come and see how we do the security protocol? Or, hey, do you want to come and see how this works on a tour? And I'd be like, yeah, fuck yeah, man. Fuck yeah, man. Fuck yeah. And then... Um, you know, next thing on the tour, I'm kind of budding around with the security guys and I've learned a lot about crowd control and and, and ultimately I learned so much about the production of a show that that's how I ended up being a tour manager. Uh, for I was obviously tour manager for Kyle for, I think, I don't know, maybe three, almost three years. Um, yeah. And that came because of that. Like, I, I just, and I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do half the things I did. You know, if someone came up and said, could you make this happen? I was like, guess I have to and I'd be like <laughs> you know in the middle of a field trying to get like 
something that I, sometimes I think look back and think they definitely just wanted to see how far they could push it. They used to go, This is a bit wild that he gets all these things to happen. Let's ask him to do this. Next thing I'd come back with this thing and they'd be like, How the fuck did you get we're in the middle of nowhere? And I'd be like, oh, man, I, but but what I would do is like use this accent and go to someone and say, Excuse me, you need to make that happen, pal. And they go, Oh my god, I think I have to make that happen. <laughs> so they would go and do it for me and I'd just take it back and get the credit. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean like you're the one of the nicest guys, but um that it's the Scottish accent as well that does it, does it? People kinda people oh, are very the accent. I and and obviously I had, I look very like a mixed race, but I have very African features. So I think there's another layer of they just can't figure out what, I think there's a shock of like, is that your accent? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, it is now get it done. And they're like, oh, <laughs> this, this guy is this guy is really intense. But they, I remember at Redden and Leeds, there's like, what happens in the festival that is you quite often get assigned a driver and they'll drive people to and from hotels. And I had the guy, he was, he was so lovely. He'd actually been the driver for um, Alicia Keys before. And uh, when he was walking around the festival, he used to just see me, uh, people would just see me in a loop and they used to go, do you ever stop? You're like the angry wee Scottish guy. And I'd just be like, Excuse me, you need to do this, like that. And I think they just used to they used to think like basically what happened was any anything that was awkward to ask, they said, send Matt, because he doesn't know that's awkward. Because I didn't know it was an awkward thing to ask. I just thought I had to ask people. And I think they people would think in the in the setup, I feel awkward about asking this. So I'm gonna ask Matt to ask it. Because he doesn't know that he should feel awkward. <laughs> and because I didn't feel awkward asking it, people tended to respond and go, Yeah, I get it. yeah, sure. And then yeah, it was it was amazing, and I learned so much. And uh, it still is one of the the, the best times of my life. And and, I, and I've got Adrian to thank for that. Like he, he he really brought me in. Just I think he just he just knew like I hadn't had much going on in life, and things weren't working out with Brown Bear and and the album. We hadn't managed to get a deal, and he thought, oh fuck, what will I do to help this kid this kid out? And he brought me in and just threw me in the deep end, and yeah, I learned so much. So and obviously. Along with the tour management, you 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 were getting support slots as well with the Libertines, weren't you? So you were getting the music out to a different audience as well. Yeah, but, well, you did you play with them at Hyde Park? Yeah, yeah, we did. We, we did. See, Hyde Park, I went so. to that gig, and um, I can't imagine seeing you. You were, were you on early, like one of the first ones yeah. on. Sorry. Yeah, well, we, we, we there was different stages in that as well, wasn't there? So we were in. Yeah, because like, the, the view played a couple of stages, I think, that day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if I should tell this story or not, but the view the view played, when people played on the Sony stage, it was a wee outside stage. Uh-huh. They all got like, everyone in the band got free PlayStation 4s. And I, I remember being raging that we weren't on that stage because we'd loved free PS4s. And uh, maybe about a week later, it was uh, I don't know, I don't know your football affiliation here, but um, it was the Maestro's uh, testimonial from it, uh, the next day testimonial. Yeah, was uh, that that was that the one that Kyle and Pete played? No, so Kyle didn't play that one. It was Martin oh. Thompson and James McAvoy played it. Right, and um, we, we were there sitting yeah. having lunch at like my game. It was something before we went on to the game, like me, Adrian, and Kyle. And Kyle turned to me and was like, uh, yeah, I just got, I just got, um, I just bought myself a new PlayStation 4, but I don't really like it. Would you, would you like to buy it off me? I'll give you it cheaper. And I was like, I was there when you got it free. And he went, oh, fuck. 
Yeah, absolute chancer. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, we, we played really early doors at that. But, but we were the support first. So like, I met that crew and the people in that team as a support artist. And it was when they came back and it was Tea in the Park 2015. It was the first time I worked for them. Mm-hmm. I got like a phone call in the morning. They said, oh, we need someone to deal with the guest list for us and like escort people back and forth. Could you come and do it? And I was like, sure. I mean, it's, I'm not doing anything today. Uh, and I'm so glad I did because, yeah, I, I, like, I ended up working all those festivals. And then they toured after it and I, I got a phone call actually the day before the tour and they said, we've had a discussion, like, could you, could you come on the tour? And I was like, I'd actually just been through a breakup and I was sitting in my flat like, what am I going to do in my life? Like, I just had to move out and all that. And then I got this phone call and said, could you leave tomorrow morning? And I was like, fuck it, yeah. Do anything to get away from life right now. And then that was me. I was on tour with them and learning the ropes and it was amazing. And do you think that kind of, obviously the tour management and stuff that you did, do you think that that helps you now, obviously, because you take um, most of the management work is on yourself with Brown Bear now, isn't it? So. Yeah, definitely. It, 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 taught, it taught me a few things. It taught me etiquette. It taught me what to expect from a venue. Um, it made me a lot of contacts at venues because I, I just generally like quite amiable as a person. So I got on with a lot of people. So when it came time for Brown Bear to do stuff, a few venues were like, a few venues that maybe shouldn't have had his had us because they were like, what's Matt? And he he did right by us when he was a tour manager. And it, it it let me know, like, this is how things should run when we're on tour and budgets and stuff like that. So, like, <clears throat> knowing, and this is so funny because, like, we don't tour as much because it can't afford to, but it's because I'm saying, well, I know this isn't going to make financial sense because I've done budgets before. Mm-hmm. But it protects all the people in the band and makes sure that nobody loses money. So, and and now when they turn up to shows, they're like, "This is so good!" Like they they they've all been in bands before, so when they turn up to our shows and like, we've got the proper setup for everyone. They're like, "This is amazing!" And it runs so well. And then when I, I you're you're obviously there on Friday, as uh, it looks like, when the setup runs professionally, everyone on the stage will act professionally. Mm-hmm. And I feel like our band are exceptional, but I think part of it's because part of it's because they are exceptional musicians, but. Part of it's because the setup is so professional that everyone knows these are the rules. This is how we do things. We respect the place we're in. We deliver for the audience. And then um, I, I think I, I learned so many skills from that. And, and also just how to like be in meetings and, and to know and to know my worth and to know what things are worth and to know that when someone's trying to bump me, you know, because I'm like, well, nah, no, that's not right. So yeah, I'm not going to accept that, you know. And I think a lot of artists would do well to go and work on tours and learn the other side and then take it back. I, I learned so much. And then, you know, it makes, I think the more you can know about the business, like the more control you'll have over your career. That's the way I've always looked at it. And, and that's a nice place to be when you know what's a good deal and a bad deal and when mm-hmm. you're being exploited and when you're not. And I, I, would, I don't know why anyone wouldn't want to learn that. And I couldn't suggest it enough. Like, and, and and also just to understand that like I had no idea how much the people that set up the stages and the sound and all that did in a day and now I think they're they're the like time for heroes, like they're the heroes of this business. Like those people who go in at the start mm-hmm. of the day and they're the last people out, they're the ones that make this business run. Like during the lockdown I felt so much for that crew because 
a lot of them that is their life and 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 in terms of everyone else they're not the best paid but the show's just music wouldn't exist without crew. Yeah, and like live music can be up and in the country as well. They finish a, a tour and then they're away on another one and it's a hundred percent like they are the hardest working people in the world and the biggest music fans and they do it because they love music. They might not play an instrument but like they love music more than half the bands on that stage. Mm-hmm. You're listening to the Time for Heroes podcast in association with the Songbird. Check it out. Martin, you're an absolute legend. What are you? An absolute legend. We'll touch on the the album, obviously. You brought it, Dead or Alive. It's the first single, 2014. And then, obviously, you had all your Libertines support, stuff like that. Then you came on to the album, What Is Home, in 2018. So, how was it recording that? Obviously, that's your first album. It, it, it was good. I think, like, the thing about What Is Home is, like, we had no money. And I'm really proud of what we made on pretty much nothing. Um, It meant a lot of favours and a lot of, like, goodwill. And, um, but with that comes, like, you you have to restrict how you make a record. Like you have a lot of ideas, you have these things of how you want it to sound, but it's like, well, we can't we can't make that happen or we can't get that in. Um I feel like we worked with a producer who obviously really helped make it happen, but they were also quite safe as a producer. They didn't they had their comfort zone. Uh-huh. And it meant that um I always felt that album sounded like a safe album. Like it was a, it was a sure bet. It was good. I still listen to some of it and go, I wish we'd done it a bit differently. Right. Um, but like, I, that's, how, that's how it should be. Like you, your first records, like every record you do is learning. So like, yeah, that should, that sounded exactly how it should sound for the situation we were in. If mm-hmm. it's not better than it should have sounded actually. I mean, there, okay. there's some absolute classics on that record. Yeah. And um, I, I, I I, I talk about this a lot, like, if the songs are there, the production's a bit easier. And I think we had the songs. We've always, like, it's funny because it's not, like, I don't know how other bands operate, but it wasn't like that was only the 10 songs we had for that record. It's just the 10 that people will hear. Yeah. And and then it's the same for this record, 10 songs. Probably no one will ever hear those other songs um, because... I'm a purist, and I think songs that are meant to be OB and the ones that weren't aren't. Right. Whereas a lot of bands like go, and then here's a sexual thing, and all these songs that weren't, and it's like, or or, or like even even some bands like some bands it baffles me because they they release an album right, and then they'll release like this extra album, and there's all these other songs. I'm listening to the first album without the extras and thinking, this isn't even ten good songs. Mm. You shouldn't have. Why did you release this? Like. And I get those time constraints and pressures. I just think that sometimes the art of writing's died a little bit and um, songs don't come first anymore. And I, I'm like, a songs come first. So, like, we knew we had 10 songs that really worked together. And that comes with recording as well. It's not like you know, because like it's probably, again, like, I think both records we probably had, like, 14 to 15 songs. And then it kind of whittles down to 12, and then we know we've got to drop two. Right. So like maybe like fifteen are completely demoed, and then twelve are fully recorded, and then ten make the record. And that's this this actually this album actually was more than that. I think 
there was over 20 songs demoed right. for the second album. So yeah, like I, I, I'm really, really proud of it, but it, and it's a lot of work. But as I say, it was a, it was, it was easier to do because we had the songs. And then it's funny what you said. Obviously, earlier you said about Brown Bear and the Bandits, and the the only kind of song that stayed for there was Olive Tree, which yeah. obviously I, I messaged you a, f- a few months ago. Obviously, my sister died, and I was I says I've been walking to work, and that came on. And it kind of struck a chord for me. It reminded me of my sister. And you think, well, that, that was before Brown Bear. That was Brown Bear and the Bandits. And we're talking nearly 10 years on. And that song still strikes a chord somewhere for somebody. somebody. So that that's kind of... That must give you like a sense of achievement, a sense that you're doing something right, that that song can connect somewhere. Yeah. And it's always hard to hear that because it's horrible that you've been through that loss. But mm-hmm. I suppose, like for me, it's I, I wrote that place. I wrote that in a place of coming through loss. So when I know that someone else has been through that and it's connected with them, then I know well. In a way, like it's been worth it because somebody's had a feeling that I had, and maybe yeah, worked work through that feeling. And I think the thing is, a real a real song, a song that's from like a real place will stand the test of time mm-hmm. and I want to make songs that stand the test of time and I think because I write in that someone said it to me recently like even when it has like a bit of a popular production like the songs still feel like a throwback to like how songs used to be it feels like nostalgia even though it's like a new record and a new song and a new sound mm-hmm. it feels like nostalgia and and all that is to me is just because I'm I'm, write, I'm writing from a real place and I'm I, like, like now the way songs work is like even but I'm not going to name the bands I don't want any beef but like you can figure it out even, even bands now that are coming out that are bands like if you go and look on the song credits there's like seven writers on the songs it's like yeah how, how does what, why why how and why somebody explain what's happening like why well, does that you, why would you know when to take control of your your own music and why would you know want it to be yours rather than what, could could you imagine like trying to tell a story at a party and your six other people were jumping in and telling the story for you? But like, hold on, wait a minute, I'm telling the story. <laughs> yeah. Like it's no different, and that's what it sounds like in a song. I actually listen to it, and go whoa, like whoa, whoa, whoa. You can hear like, and this is my wee bit, and this is my wee bit, and this is my wee bit, and it's like, yeah, it's just walk them out of the room and write a tune, like get on with it. And I think, I think for me, like. I'm not saying I don't go right, I do. I mean, Lyle Kennedy from the Ranzos, he, he wrote On Close Call with me. Mm-hmm. I loved it. He's such a great lyricist. I really loved vibing with him for that. Um, um, and I write for a lot of other people, I would say. But even then, it's usually like one other person and it's because it's because of, like, like I was doing a bit of writing with Mark Sharp, which hasn't, hasn't really gone anywhere, but we've kind of said, well, let's revisit it. Right. It's just because oh, we're vibing as well, Mark. Exactly, but we're just two people who are in the room vibing music together. We've not gone in and sat down and gone, oh well, let's write a pop song and we'll get five other producers on it. And nah, that's not how music works for me. Mm. I look forward to hearing that stuff because obviously I'm a big fan of Mark as well. I've had Mark on the podcast um, and I've been covering him a bit, bit for Songbird as well. Yeah. So, I that that would be ideal to 
to hear some of the trees. I basically pitched a, a record at one point. Um, I've I've been doing. I did a thing called the Songwriters Club, and uh, I had like a night, and it's always songwriters, and we there's four of us, and we sat around and sang songs, and uh, I think the first one was like me, Billy Mitchell, Kitty, and Carol Connor, mm-hmm. and um, th- then I was doing those Sunday Social podcasts where I was like going chatting to artists and shooting shit, and then I was thinking after like I'd love to do a record that's like brown. Like Brown Bear Sunday Social or Brown Bear at the Songwriters Club, where I do like collaboration album where I just like do songs with like my favorite writers. I still got it in my head, I might do it at some point. So I guess I'd, when I had it in my head, I started to like reach out and say, like, Should I just see. Like, I was listening to Mark and wrote a bit a little bit of a, a guy called Johnny Kerwin, uh, who's in False Friends, they're a great band. Uh-huh. If you haven't heard them, and um, yeah, I was just batting around some ideas of like. Oh, could could I have a record like that? That's again a little bit different and a little bit like a great way for us all to like we, we all have like our own audiences and yeah could could we all reach each other's audiences doing something just just different and just I think after like lockdown a lot of us were like we just want to find a love for music again because it's been taken away by the circumstance the last few years. Yeah, that sounds amazing. That I'd be really interested in that. Obviously, you mentioned lockdown. Oh, so during COVID, um, you released retro. Yeah. yeah. So how how was um how was COVID for a musician? Obviously, not been able to to not been able to record as much. How did you cope with that? It was such a weird one because um. There was layers to it, you know. Um, we we recorded retro and we were hyped. I was re- I was getting ready to come back to be in Brown Bear because I'd been away tour managing for a, a lot of time. Mm-hmm. So in a way, I I didn't panic at first, in the sense that I'd worked so much that I thought <laughs> my my plan was always to take a little bit of time off, and focus on writing and some music. It's not the ideal situation to be doing that, but it still was the situation. Retro was intended to come out. It was to kickstart everything. Another single, and I would start working on the record. Mm-hmm. And uh, came out in the lockdown. Came out, and it was just like, man, that that could not have scope. And it wasn't like during the lockdown, as in like it, it wasn't like there was periods of lockdown as well. You know what I mean? Like that yeah, was the yeah. first bit where everyone was like, ah. It wasn't the period where we'd all settled into it and so if I'd released it in the middle of it, it might have been like the biggest song of all time because there's nothing else to listen to. It was like right at the beginning and it just got lost. Just totally got lost in the shuffle. And um, it was gotten because I felt like it was um, it was a great wee single. And then, you know, we were trying to prep the next single and figure out how we got it all out and it was just a disaster from... Like, because it was like, oh, we're going to be out a lot. No, we're back in a lot. Oh, we're going to be out. No, it's a lot. Oh, and then yeah. we're allowed out, but there's these restrictions. Oh, you're back in. So it just became really confusing time. And and as you know, it became this thing of like everyone busking from their sofas. And then it became oversaturated because everybody had like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And then we were like, well, what, what do we do? And, and, and I, I had an album demoed. And I was starting to live with it and starting to write again. And I was like, do you know what? This album's not that great. So that's yeah. the good thing that came out of me. I, I was at home and I ended up rewriting a lot of stuff and writing new songs, and which became this record that's out now. Right. Um, and I taught myself to play piano. 
which like changed my writing style and helped me write some more like different styles of tunes. And um, so yeah, I kind of, I kind of, I suppose I made the most of it. I made the most of the situation I was dealt with, and mm-hmm. but it got tough, and it got tough because I, I was finally at home and I finally had to deal with a lot of things I'd been through in life, and I'd been using touring and gigging and music to be away from. And next thing I knew, I was at home and I had literally nowhere to go other than the four yeah. walls I was contained in. And but out of it, I, I, I started writing again, and I started to be really reflective, and I think. I've written some of my best stuff in the sense of like for me personally, it feels like. Uh-huh. So my, how, my does the, how does the, the songwriting process work in terms of the band? Does it do you write all the songs and then take it yeah. to the band? Yeah. And this one was even weirder because I wrote all the songs and then essentially played in all the parts in the demo and said, Is everyone cool with that? And then when <laughs> so when we made this record, it was it was pretty, I mean, you're able to see it on the back of the record if anyone has it. Like, it's pretty much me and the producer and then the drummer. Right. Played, like, the drummer came in, Sam, and then I played, like, most of the guitars and, and uh, keys. And then Ross played the bass and the organs. And, and we did the vocals. And then we had the backing singers come in for the session. And uh, Angela Chan, who was in Kyle's band, but in Placebo, she played the strings for us from home. And we had a guy called Mikey Oars come in to do the horns. Um, so it was very limited because it, because even when we came out, like there were still restrictions into how you could work and yeah, social distancing and all, all these things. And and obviously music was the last thing I would back. Like it was the last that everyone had been out and had that buzz of being out. And by the time music came back, that buzz was gone and people didn't quite support it like we thought we would. And so yeah, it was it was such a strange thing because usually I would go to the band and I'd take the songs and we'd start jamming them. This time it had to be very much like I had to figure out what I wanted the record to be. <laughs> and I was on my yeah. own, like oh. So when you when you kinda take that to the band, obviously are they able to kinda listen to that and interpret it and maybe put their own stamp on certain parts? Or are you sitting there thinking, no, I'll play it like this? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's, uh, uh, yeah, it's pretty much you as the record, learn it. Right. Cause, I mean, because everybody looks really happy when in the band, so they're obviously, they obviously um, know how good the music is to start with. They're obviously quite happy to. Yeah, but they're, they're, all, they're all like, I mean, this with the greatest respect to anyone who disagrees, but they're all proper musicians. So they, they understand that like songs are the most important thing and that like less is more. And like people who wouldn't be happy with that aren't really there for the music, they're there for themselves. Because mm. if a song's great and you love the part, you're going to that. But that's not to say that sometimes when we're playing live, like Andy, especially there's like different sounds, you'll say, well, you know, there's a couple of sounds going on here. How, do you want, how are we going to recreate this live? I came up with this bit. Does that... Yeah, uh, but cool man, I'm into that. So it's not like that. This is the record, and everyone plays it as it is. But I mean, the record sounds great. We need to figure out how to play it live, which we all do together. But it's not like someone was ever going to come in and be like, "Well, nah, I thought you should have made this part in that record." Like, we worked with really amazing people for it, so that's a that's a tough one. But some because sometimes like, whenever I see new bands, right or I get brought in to write with people, or I'm doing lecturing, or whatever it is I'm doing with like new artists, the biggest thing I have to say to people is, please stop playing. Like, 
first and foremost, let me hear the song. And then secondly, why are you playing all that stuff? Like, you, you know, guitar players love to play. You, you see bands and you, you hear this riff going all the time. And eventually I'm like, I can still hear that riff. I can still hear that riff. And, and what they don't get is like, if I'm hearing that riff, it means I'm not hearing the, the song. Yeah. And you've already, that's why you're not, that's why you're not progressing. Because all that noise means that if there's lots of noise happening, it means I'm not listening to that other thing that's really important, which is the music and the melody and the lyrics. Right. And if all I'm hearing is like, I never understand it. There'll be like a, mo a vocal line going on and the guitar part will be playing over it. I'm like, shut up. Why are you playing? We're not, we're not here to listen to the guitar solo. Um, and that, so, and, and that's, I mean, if you want to go and listen to guitar music, just go and listen to people that just play guitar. Like, yeah. You know, think think about all the you don't you don't hear like even in guitar bands like they still understand that like when certain things are happening the riff isn't happening and that's the biggest thing that people do think like everything all at once blah, 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 blah. it's like no everything has to have its own space yeah. and then you're you know like close call da, 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 like if that happened the whole song it wouldn't have the impact it has it has impact because when you hear it again you go riff all that riff makes you want to sing it because you're well, I'm only going to hear this like one more time if that happened through the whole song you'd be like all right that's kind of annoying yeah or it becomes background noise you just stop hearing it you know you know when the, <laughs> you know when someone <laughs> you know when someone in your life nags you all the time and eventually it just becomes noise <laughs> you know I mean you just go like it's the same in music if you hear it all the time it's just doesn't mean anything like if what's that there's a film um it's called the fox catcher it's about a, a, a collegiate wrestling thing yeah yeah one of those oscar films and uh i'm not gonna spoil it for anyone but like basically it's not like based around loads of violence. you know in, in, in films there's always loads of violence there's guns bah. you know like in like an avengers film or something you you become so desensitized to kill them, even though the fact that your favorite superhero is actually just murdering like innocent police officers you're like that oh, happens all the time <laughs> but in this film like someone brings a gun into it at some point and because it's one time you see a gun it's so intense and you're like <gasps> because it has the actual significance of what a gun would be mm -hmm. and, and it's the same in music it's like if a, if a riff happens all the time it has no worth if I hear this if I hear this all the time it has no worth or or, or the the opposite thing people do is like they only do it once and I'm like that's an amazing wee hook why have you only done that once I want to hear that again as yeah, in, that's that's how hooks work. Like if you do that again, like you've got yourself a hit. Like, so it's it's really frustrating because I'm like, what, what is it you? What is it? What's happening here that you you're like we're getting to this stage? So I spend a lot of time with people who are just refining things and going like, no, like think about it. like because like you're not we're not trying to trick the audience. Like you know, some people have this thing of like, yeah, but that's what people expect to hear. Well, good, give them that. Like they're paying to hear it. <laughs> Why, 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 why is that a bad thing? If people expect to hear that, let them hear it like that. That you want your audience to be happy, you want them to enjoy the music they're hearing, and it should feel like accessible music shouldn't be like I'm, I'm better than you. I'm, you know what? You're not. This audience isn't intelligent enough to get what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what it feels like sometimes. People are like nah, they just don't get how good I am. Like ah, you just, you just don't get how this business works. I mean, that's not. I mean, that's one person's opinion. Yeah. So would would you then recommend these kind of songwriting classes, summits, or whatever? Would you recommend that more people were part of them? Obviously, Kyle's got one in Spain, hasn't he? 
Yeah. Same sort of thing. And I, I mean, every time I look at that, there's somebody else is away. I mean, it's always always seems to be artists that I'm aware of that are out there. So yeah, it's good to it's... see that there's a bit of collaboration and a bit of um, artists help other artists. I, I guess it's like, yeah, I think it's a skill, isn't it? And you, you, like going around as much as you can and you know, if, if you were a footballer and you signed to a bigger club, it's not like you stopped pretending training. Yeah. Oh, I play for Arsenal now, so I don't have to train. <laughs> so, like, y- you can always learn. And um, and also just, like, some of them are great. Some of them are run by really great writers. And it's all... I, I, I taught them one called Song Seeds, kind of um, created and run by Becky Wallace. And um, it was really amazing because Becky brings in, like, different styles of writer. I stayed for the whole, the whole thing. I just kind of hung about and was kind of giving people song advice for the whole week after I'd done my masterclass. But they had someone from like the folk world and someone in from the punk world and they were teaching all the different ways of writing songs. And it was, it was really amazing to th- see how other people think through songs in different fields because for folk music, like a lot of the tools that are relevant to what I do are are completely irrelevant. So it's amazing to hear that. Whereas like the next day, like I'm, I'm saying to people, everything you learned yesterday for what we're doing today is irrelevant. And then the next day, those in everything you learned the last two days is irrelevant because it's a different style of song. So, mm-hmm. I think they're. I think it's so good to always push your boundaries as a writer, and you know, figure out what else you what else you can do. You know, and um, yeah, I would I would really suggest it for people. I, I, I again, songwriting courses are cool. Like at uni, if you want to do it, do it. But um, I guess make sure you know the people that are running it and. The, yeah, kind of respect them as a writer, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you definitely would need to connect with the, the person you're working with as well. There's no point yeah. in saying it with some random that you don't really like, you don't get on with because you're not going to get that, that yeah. connection. It's a bit like co writing as well as like dating. Like, honestly, it's like you go sometimes, and even if you love the person's music and you get on, like, you just don't have any chemistry for writing, and that's okay. Mm. And then some people you write with, and it's like bam, straight away. Oh my god! Like I, I write with an artist called Kitty, and uh, we just always seem to get great songs every time we're together. We're like, and I, we just have this great chemistry when we write together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I've I've got a couple of singles for record when it comes, which is cool. Um, but then there's other people who I've loved, and I've been like, let's write together, and it's been a real slog. And I'm like, I really wanted this to work because I love your music, but we just don't have any chemistry here. And that's, right. that's okay. That's like dating. Like, it's like dating. It's like pals. You don't get on with everyone. Yeah. So, let's touch on the, the the second album, Demons, obviously. Released 17th of March, not long ago. Um, it was a top 10 in the Scottish album charts. Yeah. So, um, along with that, you played an album launch at St. Luke's, which I attended. Um, absolutely amazing. What a gig that was. Cheers. Um, everybody on stage just smiled the full night. Everybody off the stage watching you was smiling all night. It was it was one of the best gigs I've been to in the last two or three years, obviously, for COVID and stuff like that. It was brilliant to be back watching music. Uh, I'd been to see Hamish Hawk only a couple of weeks ago at the same venue as well, so... 
I mean, St. Luke's is one of the places where I might I might not go to it for like a year, and then I get two or three gigs there in, in the space of a month, and I was absolute class seeing Hamish Hawk and then seeing yourselves in that venue. Yeah. Both of both uh Asai as well, yeah. Yeah. It was just glass, like. Um I I it feels like St. Luke's is starting to become that venue. That yeah. it's like it's like the new tuts, you know. It's starting to be that point when you see someone do well there, you go, Oh gosh, is this is this next step for him? It felt that certainly for us felt like a different level of show. It felt we we walked off stage and went, What what just happened? Like I was still a bit like I was still sitting like I was texting the band every day and I was saying that's not really over St. Luke's. You, you know, usually it's like show, show. Well, that was a good show, next show, bam, 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 bam. I've still been sitting there going, what? What did we just live through? Because you know, we it was so far right before we walked on stage, we had a wee chat and I said, listen, what happens happens tonight. People probably won't believe this, but we only had one rehearsal together as a group. We've we had some rehearsals like where we saw it some like I was with a couple of people, a couple of people. With a couple of people. But mm. as one whole unit, we were only together once before that show. So I was kind of like, what happens, happens when we walk out there. We've picked a set list. I'm going to make the call to do Spin Another Web after the we walk off and come back on. It might bomb. We deal with it. We'll, we'll, we'll add suspicious minds into the set to cheer people up after we've bombed. People are not going to love the new songs. They're going to I'll be aware of them because they listen to the record. They're going to be like, cool. Next time we come back to Glasgow, people will love them, right? That's what happened last time. So keep in the first record stuff. Start with Dead Alive, get out of the way. People know who used in with that. Start with it. Get a couple of the ones to keep them happy and get get through the new record. People will probably non-respond, but appreciate it. Then we, they, <laughs> then we walk out. Dead Alive, bang. Covers. I turned to Sam, gave him a weird look because there was a couple of people in the crowd looking at me when we played covers as if I'd played, I don't know, like they just looked perplexed at what I was playing. <laughs> so I don't, don't really know what's going on. This is not what I expected. Close call, bang. In the whole room, I'm like, oh shit. <laughs> let, let your guard down, bang. Mm. People, like, people, people are screaming back the words to us for an album that's less than a week old. Okay. Get through the set and that, that, that every, every song people would like, you, you know, yeah. like, I, I, and, and I have earplugs in, so, like, I can't hear so much of the crowd. I could hear so much of it. And I saw a video back recently of Let Your Guard Down, and I didn't realise how loud people were singing. But Andy had tried to say to me, the guitar player, I'd say, I can't hear my in ears because it's too loud. Like, the crowd's too loud. And I was like, we were just kept on around each other and having this, like, oh, what the fuck is going on? And um, then we came back on and did Spin Another Web, and I'd kind of said to him, like, let's just go for it, like, I said, you know what? Like, I, I, even after that response, I walked off in the in the break bit, and I went, "When we go back on, t- use this. To take, they're not, they're going to be fucking non arsed about this moment, but we'll take it to settle ourselves before we go off and just say thanks." We made the decision that it was only going to be me and the singers. I was like, "Let's not have the band on for this. I'm just going to go and with it with the singers." And we, we were just like everyone singing back the words to like the slow song from the album. I was like, "What is going on?" <laughs> just the just the whole the whole night was just a what is going on. Well, there. I did say to you I'd on that review that I had done. I mean, spinning another web is without a shadow of doubt my favourite song in that album. Yeah. Um, so it's just everything about the album. It's funny you say that. Obviously, 
a week between album coming out and then that show. It's it's amazing to think how much response. Obviously, I got the album a couple of weeks before the review. So mm-hmm. even for even for me, that's a short length of time for me to get the songs in my head. But mm-hmm. for those other people to have a week to to get in, it just it shows you how how well the album's been received, doesn't it? Yeah, it's in, it's incredible, and it's been another win. It's so funny. I do, I do every album. So with all of three, I was like, I don't know, people might not like it. It's a bit of a ballad. It's a bit of a slow one. Been another web. I was like, this is so poppy, ballady, sad <clears> song. It's not what indie folk will like. And what I found over time is that people just like songs. If a song's a song and it means something to them, they'll like it. And people keep coming back and saying, Spin on the web's my favourite, spin on the web, spin on the web. Mm-hmm. I was like, shit, I really it's my favourite. Like it's it means a lot to me. It's like the most personal song I've ever written, maybe. I didn't expect I didn't expect that response to it. And it's been like, wow, like wow. Yeah, I don't really have anything else to say other than like just yeah. totally. So what would um obviously what what would happen going forward? Obviously you've had um three singles. Yeah. Would you release any more singles off the album? De- definitely. Um, um so obviously with the reception you've received with Spin Another Web, would that be in contention or would you like to kind of keep that just the the, the great thing about this record is can you well, hear that? Well, my cat having a uh coughing up a hairball in the background. <laughs> lovely. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, yeah, the, the great thing with um this record, I guess, like one thing was like when we got Julie, who does our regional plugin, and she came back and was like, um I I went to Julie and I said, Julie, you're the professional, you tell me what singles we should be doing. And she came back and said, uh, could I phone you? I thought, oh God, here we go. She's got to tell me this album shit. She, she was a uh, said, um, I really don't know. For the first time in my life, I don't know. And Julie works with a lot of amazing artists. Like she plugged, she's plugged for like Art Monkeys, Paul Weller, and Old Gallagher. Like you name it. Mm-hmm. Um, she was like, I've never, um, I've never had a record where I couldn't pick a single because every song could be a single. And I was like, oh shit, thanks very much. Um. So then we started to figure it out. So I suppose in that sense, like any song probably could be a single. Because the album's out now and we do singles, it's really like just what we want to do and put focus on. And as you as you know, like visuals are a big thing and we do a lot of music videos. So uh-huh. I've got a couple of video ideas for some of the songs, which I know will then make, kind of make them inadvertent singles. But in, in an ideal world, I, I would have loved a, a pitch for it, but it's like we don't have any money. So it's like, oh, like we have to go into public funding and pitch. I'd have loved to have made a video for every song or had like a, a short film or like a theme or maybe it's what I'll do for the next record where like I'd love to make a film that's the record mm-hmm. I'd love to get to that stage of like like thinking it out and so I've got some ideas of like little bits of that for this so we're just so basically we're in the moment in, in, the, in the middle of pitching uh for some budget to make some videos and that will kind of determine what singles they are and they're going to be really cool projects and I think that's that's been the one thing that's been missing from this process is like, you know, there wasn't a video for the last two singles, which is not like us, but we yeah. just, just kind of we can't afford to do them. So, because it really is just me. Like, I, I, that's no lie. There's a lot of artists who give you that whole. There's no one involved, and they have a label, or they have the world's biggest promoter as their promoter, and um, 
it's bullshit. And for us, it's like, that's literally just me. So I can't afford to do that. And I have to go and do funding applications to try and get funding to make a video. And they take a long time. It takes... Yeah. So, some funding applications are like doing a, like making an album because they're so extensive. But the one thing it's meant is we've always been able to do what we want to do. And everything we do, we do with like passion and, and with everything we have. And, and we do it our way. And it means that we retain our like creative ownership and, mm-hmm. and it's, and it's funny isn't it when you like people just think of musicians as like you just go and record an album and that's all you do all day I mean I'm pals with uh, Jamie for the LaFontaine's the drummer in the LaFontaine's and like all the guys are holding down jobs because you can't mm-hmm. just you can't just go and do music that's no that no. doesn't do anymore you need no. to go the other jobs he he works in building sites and all sorts of stuff. He t- he does jobs all over the place, selling Christmas trees uh, and stuff like that. The guys, uh, you you you're you're always grafting to be able to afford to deliver what you love, mm-hmm. and it's no different for me. Like on top of all of this, I'm I'm doing like little bits of freelance work. I'm very lucky that it's in music and arts, and I, what what I do now is um often teaching songs or I, I work putting in place support for artists so making sure that artists have um support for their well-being and it's been just so amazing to meet artists every day and talk to them about their art and it's all music it's all different kinds of art and um, it's, it's I'm really fortunate and I'm I really and I get to like use all the things I used to be outspoken about, I actually get to action. I get to, I get to go to people and say, like, you know, this is acceptable, and this artist should have this, or this shouldn't. This company shouldn't be operating like this. And, um, you know, I'm always like keeping an eye on like the activism side of mm-hmm. the art, I guess, and and just fighting for better rights for artists here, like because there's no reason we shouldn't have our own business and our own setup in Scotland. Like, I think we're a, com- a country that. Um, isn't confident enough in ourselves, and I think we've got so much to offer this, this global business. Um, but we sometimes get shy, and 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 we, you know, you'll you've met many bands, I'm sure, who talk about London all the time, and I just think, what do you need London for? Like, do it from here, like like make it make it everything, you know. Yeah, I mean, London, London's got, there's good points about London, but there's also, um, drawbacks. You know what I mean? You're, you're better. You're better off away from it. I think so. Kinda, you you probably get more control the further away you are. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so obviously, going forward, you've got an acoustic tour coming up. Where yeah. I mean, we touched on it earlier about these places that that maybe don't get to see as much live music. So you're taking you're taking your acoustic tour all over. Tobermory, um, Stornoway, Gallus Hills, Irvine, places like that. So you get that coming up the end of April, aren't you? Yeah. And, and culminating in a gig in Edinburgh at the Caves. Yeah. So what's the plans then after that? Uh, I mean, we, we get a lot of offers to go down south. We're in discussions to go back to Germany. So we're just trying to like figure out how how we can make those shows happen, and then if we can make them happen, how to afford them. But because I do it myself, it's like 
takes a long time. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I've kind of got an eye on like maybe we'll do a couple of shows at the end of the year down south. There's obviously some places in Scotland we've missed out. But ne- next year's 10 years of Brown Bear. So then I'm like, do we just wait and do like a proper big plan for a big tour next year where we kind of go around and see everybody and, and um, hopefully by then we've had these... It does need to culminate in the Barrowlands. You do need to play. This is it. I know. I've called it now, but yeah, I'd, I'd love to do 10 years of Brown Bear at Barris. And, and for me, like that'll be the end of 10 years. It's the end of this album cycle. And kind of discussions are ongoing about if it's maybe time for me to take a little hiatus from music. And if if I'm going to do that, I'd like to end it somewhere big before I, I take a, I take a time, time away because it's been, it's been a lot. Um, I've lived through a lot. Doing it myself has been a lot, and um, for all the ups, there's been a lot of lows, and I, I haven't always looked after my my well being. I'm starting to try to do that now, and uh, I, and I and I hate talking about it because I get emotional. I get like it's hard to admit that I need to. It was yeah. hard to admit. It's hard to admit that, but I, I know that like I've started certainly saying to people like you know this if this is the last time I tour, it's been an honor. Um and next year might be the last time. I'm not never say, not say I would never do shows again, but I don't know if I'd ever tour again. Um, it, it, it takes a lot of year yourself as well to end it. Yeah, and what people need to remember is like in between when we toured, I was tour managing and working on tour, so I was on the yeah. road for the better part of like nine to ten months a year for like four or five years of my life, and uh, I didn't have a life. I didn't. I don't. I, I've not. I've, I've missed out on a lot of life things and. Um, and obviously, like I've been so lucky to get a bit of work in film and and directing, and I'd love to explore where that goes, like making music videos for other people, working on some film, with and, and and like just just in general for me, like a lot of people have asked me what will happen for the next record, and I, I keep saying the same thing, which is is the truth as I know it. I'll only ever put an album when it's when it's worth it, yeah. And to be worth it, I need to live and I need to write and. I'd rather wait another five years and deliver a great, a better record than just put out songs because I had them. So I want to go and live and write and record and figure out that next record and and, and be able to just come back and deliver another great, great hopefully great piece. Of, hopefully people think they're great pieces of work. Hopefully deliver another great piece of work to people and and yeah, I'd rather yeah, that than trying to outshine, you know. So who knows? An enigma. <laughs> <laughs> Oi, oi, you wonderful people out there. You're listening to the Time for Heroes podcast in association with the Songbird HQ. Bosh, get all over it. Aye, the final part, part of the podcast, obviously, with it being called Time for Heroes, um, I asked my guest to pick four or five yeah. heroes to come for a, a dinner. Um, why you've chose those heroes, what they mean to you, uh, and also, I like to throw a spanner into works. I want you to tell me what you're going to cook them as well. Oh, I love it. Um, okay, so who, what heroes would I have? Um, gosh, that's a big one. Dead or alive? Are they, are they, does it matter? Yeah, dead or alive. I think I think um, I'd definitely love to have Ray Charles there. Um, just I think he was like the pinnacle of music, and also, he's the first artist to own his own masters and all that. So I'd love to know like all of that process and like how that went down. Um, 
Gosh, that's it. This is really tough. <laughs> um, I bet there's people that just rhyme them off. Like, no, it it does throw people a bit. Some people can't choose. Um, I always say Gemma, Gemma Clark for Baby Shambles. She ended up with like a list of about twenty different people. Wow. She couldn't whittle it down. Um, obviously think... you're going to pick John Lennon and Paul McCartney. I would. <laughs> <laughs> I so I can spit in their food. Um, no, that's a joke. Obviously, yeah. uh, <laughs> that was the daily record. I know. <laughs> it hits the Beatles. I, I think Nina Simone is like ever fascinating and just again like what what an incredible person and like just so intense. I've been intense dinner. That's for sure. Um. Gosh, who are your? I suppose it's really hard. Who are your heroes? Like, but you know, it's funny. Like, I, 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 do you know what? Who, do you know I'd have that dinner because I'd have that dinner already. Graham Lyle, who's one of the greatest songwriters to ever come out of Scotland, and uh-huh. he's just a total gentleman. And uh, I would have, I'd have Graham there because he's, he's been just, just amazing in my career and and then as, people, as a person. If people aren't aware of him, um, could you tell it? Tell the, the podcast kind of has background some of the stuff he's done. Yeah, so, so Graham Graham was in Gallagher and Lyle, which was like a kind of big Scottish group, and McGuinness Flint as well back in like, I don't know, that would be like the 60s, 70s, 70s, maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be defensive here, sorry. But <laughs> I think it's, I think it's like maybe 70s, 80s. And, um, uh, and Graham was a writer for, writer for Apple, and uh, after Gallagher and Lyle, he went on to write Tina Turner, he wrote What Stuff Got To Do With It, and We Don't Need Another Hero, he wrote for Michael Jackson, but he's from Marks, so yeah. when when we were starting out, I got a phone call from Graham and invited me to the house in Marks, and um, I kind of see him from time to time, and he's just just, just the most um, humble human that's ever lived, uh, but he's just got so much knowledge and so much uh, love and respect for music, so I think he would be amazing to sit and chat, I think we'd love to chat to him as well, and, um, um, gosh, who else? Who else is on that heroes list? See, we're, we're getting deep now, but I think like the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. Like, if anyone wants to wrestle, I think I'd be the first person to pack a wrestler for um, oh, the heroes. Yeah, Dustin Daft. Yeah, he's a great one of the greatest of all time. So, imagine getting to sit and pick his brains about like the business. Right. Um, so there you go. Like that's what what I line up so far. Graham Lyle, the, the American Dream, Dusty, Dusty Rhodes, Nina Simone, Rachel. Ray Charles. Maybe maybe firing some drama there and invite like Malcolm X and see see what it was all about. Like get some politics yeah. and get some like extreme politics and um. But yeah, I, I don't know. I, I it's really tough, isn't it? Like who who do you invite here? Then I think I'd invite all of them because that's quite a, a, a melting pot of like. Iconic human humans. Yeah, that, it's definitely that. That's what I like when people kind of pick a mixture as well. I mean, nobody's yeah. ever asked me. I, I I don't even think I could choose my heroes yet. Yeah. I think I think what I I use I use this podcast for my heroes. So anybody that I've had in the podcast, I consider them a hero. Come for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> yes, glass. I love it. I don't know. That's just, I wish I wish I'd really like. I was saying to you before we came on here. What's this going to be about? Um, 
I'm going to go away now and kick myself because there's going to be so many people that I probably sit people all the time like, oh, God, if I could meet, I know I'd love to meet. I, I mean, I'd love to meet Stevie Wonder. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can come. Um... There would be so much, show, wouldn't there? Especially kind of the style of music that you that you are doing as well. Like there must yeah. be so many kind of. Is it? I mean, I described your music as um, like Holland, Dodi, and Holland. Yeah, that's the greatest compliment I've ever had. Um, like you get all the. All those kind of iconic people from Motown that I, I would want to sit down with all them. But how how would you whittle that down to like one or two I, of them I, as well? I know, I know. And I probably just invite Smokey Robinson because he was the most involved, right? And then maybe like, as well, it's like I, like I love films and like I'd love, to, I'd love to have someone like Jodie Comer over dinner. She's such an incredible, incredible actor and like could do any accent in the world. Like, you'd be like yeah, but for being, um, like a mad scouser to pull off that Russian accent, you you wouldn't I even. Like, I didn't realise she was from Liverpool because like, you've seen her in Calanive, and then then to hear her speak normal, you're like, how can you do that accent? They're like no, a million miles away from each other. Incredible, eh? So they they'd all be there, and I'd and I'd make uh, some. Uh, some like fried plantain and jollof rice and some nice African dishes, some like West African dishes. Just right. go to town on it. Yeah, that's where we'd be. Get some uh yeah, I think that's I think that's what I think that's what I do. Like get get that kind of thing going. What would I get them into drink? There's a thing called African Fanta, if anyone anyone knows it knows it. And, and that was it's unbelievable. If you ever pass in like an African shop, they'll probably have it in or this big bottle of Fanta that's kind of like undescript, like it has fat on it, big tall glass bottle. It's called African fat. That's what we call it. And uh, some people claim it's like Nigerian fat, but most people say African fat. And it's incredible. And so I probably and I got I got that in for the show. Uh, it looks I got that in as like a specialty for the, uh, particularly right. for the singers. And uh, I was kind of like, this is our like treat for us from home. So, um, yeah, that would be my dinner party. Maybe an older age. That sounds amazing. Sounds absolutely amazing. Um, uh, it's been a pleasure having you on, Matt. Um, oh, thank you so much. At this time in the morning to do a podcast. Uh, if anybody wants to get in touch with you for Brown Bear or that, where can they get a hold of you? Twitter is always good, at Brown Bear Band. Uh, Instagram is Brown Bear underscore official. They're the two we use most. If you're on Facebook, it's Brown Bear, uh, www.facebook.com forward slash Brown Bear official. But I would say like we're most active on Twitter and Instagram now and that's just the best. But we've got a website as well, it's brownbearofficial.com and uh, you can sign up for the mailing list so we're about to launch the mailing list properly. So that's like definitely a worthwhile thing doing because I, I kind of go through phases of like, well, am I going to be online or not? But we'll probably always be consistent once it starts on the mailing list. But that's still to start because we do it all ourselves. Everything, everything's on <laughs> the time limit of... Someone was asking me about merchandise the other day. And, yeah, uh, that was me, you, I think. Yeah, yeah, but you, yeah, you asked about it as well. But there was, there was, there's, there's been a lot of people asking about that T-shirt, and I was basically saying, basically, I've got to do a stock count and be able to put it back online, and then I'd have to take it off for the tour. So it might be that once the tour is done, we do a stock count and it goes online then because we, because I genuinely do self-manage it. So it's like, yeah, you're up against it, you know. But um, listen, it's 
it's uh, what else would you rather do? You know what I mean? Exactly. It's stock count. Stock counts are the way forward. <laughs> <laughs> so I check out Matt on all these on his Facebook and his Twitter and all that. What you said, um, but that's that. Thanks very much for coming on the podcast. It's been a oh, thanks for having me. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Time for Heroes podcast. If you would like to get in touch, the best way is on the Facebook page, Time for Heroes podcast, or on Instagram at Time for Heroes podcast, or Twitter at Time for Heroes P1, or drop me an email at Time for Heroes pod at gmail.com You'll find Time for Heroes on all podcast platforms including Spotify, Apple, Google and Amazon. Please leave a review where you can, share with others and more importantly, enjoy. Enjoy.